Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're going to break down the sixth episode of Star Trek Lower Decks entitled Terminal Provocations. For this episode, we'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis does contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. However, rest assured, we will uh, not divulge you know, all of the jokes, let's say. Or Star Trek <laughs> reference gags. What is that in episode. reference to? <laughs> so those moments will be fresh for you when you get a chance to see it for yourself. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. Okay, all right. So the Cerritos is holding position in space near a recently discovered shipwreck. It's a Federation ship, so Starfleet, understandably, wants to salvage the uh, remains... But a race of scavengers, the Drukmani, are claiming that the ship is over a century old, thereby voiding any salvage claims Starfleet may have had. The security officer, Lieutenant Shrek, is chomping at the bit to blow the freighter out of, the sp- out of space. But Captain Freeman insists on a diplomatic solution. While this tense standoff is going on, the Lower Decks crew are goofing off in the mess hall. A friend of Boimler from Starfleet Academy days, Ensign Fletcher, is leaning backwards under the replicator while the machine pours cantaloupe puree directly into his mouth. Yuck. In her excitement at the event, Mariner stumbles into Dr. Tana, pushing her face into a plate of nachos and getting cheese into her fur. And a rate Dr. Tana loses her temper and tells Mariner to go work on Starbase 80 if she's so interested in screwing around. This gets a shocked reaction from the crew and things nearly come to blows. But then the suave Fletcher steps in and smooths the whole thing over. Mm. Boimler remarks that Fletcher was always doing that sort of thing when they were at the academy together. Elsewhere, Rutherford and Tindy are talking about what could be in the cargo containers floating out in space. Rutherford remarks that they'll probably have to do a spacewalk to retrieve them since the cargo is too massive for the transporters to handle. This new fills Tindy with apprehension. She reveals that she's never passed her spacewalking courses at the academy, but graduated anyway due to maybe a potential clerical error that Tindy never bothered to report. Luckily, Rutherford is working on a holodeck program that can help train Tindy for this. Later, Mariner, Boimler, and Fletcher are putting their academy training to work, changing, changing out chips in a series of isolinear cores. Mariner moans that it's taking so long that they're going to miss the choo-choo dance event taking place elsewhere on the ship. Fletcher assures Mariner and Boimler that he can handle this on his own, and he sends them off to get their choo-choo on. Meanwhile, Rutherford unveils his holodeck training program, 
which includes a virtual assistant shaped like a Starfleet badge appropriately named Badgie. Soon the two have spacesuits on and dash around in the holographic space. While Tindy is learning how to maneuver her spacesuit, her magnetic boots accidentally get stuck to Rutherford's. Suddenly, Badgie appears and offers to start the training program. While loading the program, Badgie's progress bar gets stuck, and Rutherford is frustrated in his attempt to impress Tindy and savagely yells at and kicks the hologram. It spits out the program Rutherford wants, but at a price. Now, Mariner and Boimler return from the choo-choo dance to find Fletcher passed out and woozy. One of the isolinear cores for the shield array is missing. It's a redundant system, but one which will definitely be noticed. Boimler deduces that the culprit must have wanted to get Fletcher in trouble, but not harm the ship. Fletcher claims he was stunned by an unknown assailant. Who's shady as hell and knows these systems as well as we do? Asked Mariner. The unanimous answer is Delta Shift. Delta Shift, a.k.a. the third shift or night shift, are the rivals of Beta Shift, which Mariner, Boimler, and Fletcher work on. After confronting Delta Shift, Fletcher flies off the handle and threatens one of the Delta Shifters. A fight almost breaks out when the Delta Shifters reveal that they couldn't have done it because they were at the choo-choo dance too, alongside Boimler and Mariner. So back on the bridge, things are heating up. The Drukmani ship uses a tractor beam to hurl huge bits of wreckage at the Cerritos. Lieutenant Schacht pleads to be allowed to destroy the ship, but Freeman stands (laughs) firm. The shields are draining fast because of the missing core. The resulting power shortage doesn't shut off the holodeck, but does shut off the safety protocols. While Rutherford tries fruitlessly to end the program, Badgie takes his chance to launch himself at Rutherford and exact his revenge for the beating he received earlier. Thinking quickly, Rutherford changes the environment to a Bajoran marketplace. Badgie follows him in and gruesomely murders two holographic Bajorans. Rutherford and Tindy change their robes to blend in as locals. But Badgie has already spotted them and pursues them out of the city and up a long staircase leading to a temple on the mountainside. Meanwhile, the Drumagni captain still peppers the Cerritos with wreckage, causing the shield strength to continue to diminish. Fletcher now claims that Drukmani must have stolen the core. Mm-hmm. The three ensigns run back to their bunks to grab their scanners so they can locate the intruder. In the process of doing this, Boimler notices a lump on Fletcher's bunk. <laughs> it turns out to be the missing core. Fletcher breaks down and confesses everything. He felt taxed by doing all the chores by himself. So he hooked up his brain to one of the cores in an attempt to make himself smart enough to do it in a jiffy. The thingamajig went predictably bad. Fletcher begs Boimler and Mariner not to report him, and they acquiesce. Then they go about trying to replace the core without anyone noticing. Their efforts are complicated when the core, animated by Fletcher's brainwave patterns, scrambles away from Boimler. 
it picks up a pad and begins to eat it, chanting, make me smarter. Grab her tentacles, pop out, and start pulling these objects into a giant mass. Badgie is still chasing Rutherford and Tindy up the staircase. Rutherford notices that Badgie is getting tired, too. His lack of hollow programming expertise has left Badgie vulnerable to the normal life form's physical limitations. Knowing this, he decides to freeze Badgie to death by changing the environment to a snowy mountaintop. Meanwhile, the mutated core continues to pick up random objects in its path to add to its bulk. Mariner throws a sheet over it and begins to drag it away. Excitedly, Fletcher declares he's come up with a plan. He says, let the core beat them up and then they can tell their superiors that Q showed up and did all this. So this dreadful suggestion convinces Boimler and Mariner to tie him up and leave him in a corner. Then the two try to drag the core to the transporter before it gets too big to move. Well, they don't quite make it to the transporter, but they do get it out of an airlock. The day is saved, well, they think it is, until the core drifts over to the Drukmani ship. On the bridge, the officers are in a red alert mode as their shields are failing. Shax finally has permission to fire on the freighter, but the weapons are down. Unfortunately, the mutant core tears into the freighter and disables it. Uh-oh. So back on the holodeck, the holodeck program degrades slowly, which allows Rutherford to have one final fist fight with Badgie. He watches him succumb to the cold and then breaks his neck, <laughs> wailing over what he's done. The program finally ends, and a new version of Badgie pops up, which is all glitch-free and knows nothing about what he just did. Rutherford and Tindy rush out. Fed up with Fletcher's antics, Mariner rats him out with Commander Ransom. For his efforts, Fletcher earns a commendation from Starfleet for saving the Cerritos, as well as a promotion to lieutenant and a transfer to the USS Titan, which is the ship Boimler always wanted to be on. Boimler takes this as in stride. Maybe the responsibility will make Fletcher mature into the guy he always should have been. However, Boimler's hopes for his friends are dashed when Fletcher calls them six days later, having been kicked out of Starfleet for emptying trash into the warp core. Mariner and Boimler feign a communications failure due to Q when he asks for their assistance <laughs> to be reinstated. The two decide they make a pretty good team and resolve not to fight as much between themselves in the future. Yeah. Um, the cold opening goes back for this episode. Uh, and it, um, it was another silly interaction between our characters that also served as an introduction to Fletcher, one of the characters that was introduced in this episode. Yeah, so um, on that note, let's go into deeper into the plot analysis. Right, 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 right. So uh, first we're going to talk about the A plot. Mm -hmm. Fletcher and the isolinear core. Mm -hmm. So this actually... What's the weakest of the three plots? Its weakness can be attributed to one thing. 
Tim Robinson's voice acting as Fletcher. For most of the episode, his performance is one-dimensional, and the dimension was as a loud, manic psychopath. (laughs) Yes, he was. Outside of a very brief period in the beginning, he doesn't appear to display any of the characteristics needed to be Starfleet material. Besides revealing himself to be a liar and a slacker, Fletcher never appears to do things for others without an ulterior motive. These suspicions first surfaced when he offered Dr. Tana a towel and some new nachos, then turned around and begins to flatter Mariner after disparaging Dr. Tana by calling her a cat in the coat. It was the kind of two-faced thing a person does to collect IOUs on someone else, which you're going to eventually ask for a favor. That's going to exceed what you just did for that person. So case in point, Fletcher saves Mariner from being reprimanded by Dr. Tana. And in turn, Fletcher asks Mariner and Boimler to cover, cover up the fact that he's damaged the ship's defenses and created a power-hungry sentient device that could destroy the ship. Yeah, just that little thing. you know. <laughs> so besides that, the way the animers drew Fletcher... You know, Gary, I know, was sure that there was something untrustworthy about that guy. Yeah. He had those insanely large eyes with these small, diluted pupils indicating that he was a bit unstable. I think they must have recorded the voice performance first, then did the animation because the artist fit the drawing to the voice performance perfectly. But this is what I meant by one-dimensional. For the majority of the episode, Fletcher's expressions were too wild. Also, there were way too many holes in his explanation about what happened to the isolinear core. The first one, that someone stunned him with a phaser, was easy to debunk since we know that you can't shoot a phaser on a starship without an alarm going off. We saw that in Star Trek VI, Undiscovered Country, when Lieutenant Valeris destroyed a pot in the kitchen aboard the Enterprise. Yep. Yep. But the real issue really was Tim Robinson's performance. He's really not an actor. Nope. He's a comic writer who thinks he's an actor. Mm-hmm. A, few, a few years ago, Robinson co-starred in a Comedy Central show called The Detroiters, or Detroiters, where he played pretty much the exact same character, a marketing agent who got in trouble and expected his partner to help him out of it. What he did as Fletcher was exactly the same response. He was emotionally exaggerated. This is why his performance is hard to believe. Boimler and Mariner have to be real idiots not to recognize that Fletcher is so incompetent how does he get promotion? How did he even get promoted to Ensign? Anyways, I hope we never see Ensign Fletcher again. Yeah. You know, I, I for one, especially because you know that um, 
Mariner can smell when somebody she sure can, and she's done that. Yeah, you know when when they're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's a very suspicious person, and she's very observant too. Very observant. So, so, so they have her written so that she just kind of goes along with it, and she doesn't start suspecting him. You know, I I didn't get that. I mean, the first thing, like 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 we said, the first thing with the phaser. That's easy to fix. It, yep. But then it's the next thing is it was the aliens, the Drukmani, who got on the ship. Well, how did they get on the ship when and nobody was able to detect it? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, they they have weaker technology than the than the than the, the Cerritos. That's so right. How are they going to be able to do that? So you know, his lies inside of lies were just constantly spinning out to be more exaggerated. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay, well, let's move on to the B plot, which was Rutherford, Tindy, and Badgie. And this was actually, I felt, the star of the episode. This was the best plot line in the episode by far, even though it played upon the often used scenarios of the malfunctioning holodeck and a new piece of technology turning on its creator. They were actually breathe new life into it by both ideas being combined into one storyline. It's sort of like it combined the TNG episode's evolution where Wesley inadvertently creates intelligent nanites that endanger the ship and the scientific experiment that they were assigned to conduct with a fistful of datas where a computer malfunction traps Worf, Alexander, and Troy on the holodeck with a series of threatening characters that all look and have the abilities of Commander Data. Badgie, the malfunctioning virtual tutor that reminds you of the annoying Clippy from Windows 98, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is both the nanites and the holographic datas. I mean, when it begins to call Rutherford father, it's fulfilling this Frankenstein progression of seeing itself as the child of its creator. Yes. And with the desire that eventually comes to kill its parent. That's right. Yeah. The other joy that I got out of this storyline was watching the developing care of relationship between Rutherford and Tindy. Their budding romance is actually quite cute. Um, Rutherford confesses to Badgie that he's attracted to her. He explains that his willingness to help Tindy learn how to spacewalk is his veiled excuse for another chance to impress her. And we see that Rutherford falls back on his competence as a scientific engineer in an attempt to impress another lady. Mm. I mean, this is we saw that in the first episode, Second Contact, only this time it's his vulnerability that attracts Tendi more. And I'm looking forward to their relationship developing throughout the remaining uh, yeah, episodes. Definitely like to see that. And if they do continue down this line where, you know, there is some romantic involvement. Right. I, you know, I, I would like to see, you know, what does that mean for an Orion? Mm -hmm. You know, does she have any different, you know, points of view about what, romance is and what love is and what commitment is so so I, I guess that's yet to be seen right right so now let's talk about the c plot which has to do with the drukmani freighter i thought that this was the second best plot line it was great seeing jg hertzler who played chancellor martok in uh previous uh, series so in this case, he plays another one-eyed alien hell-bent on getting his way. 
Once again, the situation shows Captain Freeman trying to resolve the situation diplomatically before she blows the enemy out of the sky. Once again, you have the Cerritos seemingly overwhelmed by an alien race that isn't even their te technological equal. The Drukmani freighter has to throw debris at the Federation ship using its tractor beam. Just like in Episode 3, Temporal Edict, where the Gelrakians are able to board the Cerritos, we see the crew rally back from being dangerously vulnerable. In this situation, it provides a great way to tie the other two plots in for a collective resolution. Now, I was curious as to why Starfleet wouldn't retrieve or destroy sensitive technology from the debris field. The Drugmani are staking claim because the tech has been abandoned for more than a century. The uh, U.S. or other countries have self-destruct mechanism on advanced tech so they can be destroyed remotely. So we, you would think that in the future they would have, you know, similar technology. Yeah, it would only make sense, specifically if you're concerned about that technology falling into the wrong hands or falling into the hands of your enemy. I mean, for example, so all these years you had that the, the Romulans and the Klingons were the only ones that had um, cloaking, cloaking device. devices, mm -hmm. right? And so what if your derelict ship is wafting out there with a unharmed cloaking device technology on there? That means that all of a sudden, then anybody who finds those ships can can access that and figure out a way of retrofitting it to their own technology, and and that's that would have changed everything. Well, the only thing I can think of is that if the Drumani, uh you know, came across it, that that they that the ship had the the starship had gotten lost, and nobody really knew where it was, and right. so that's why it wasn't destroyed. Um, earlier that would make sense that would make sense but that's not what we presented here they said it's been s drifting out there in space for a long time for uh, over a hundred years right. so i mean it must have took them a while to get their, their freighter over there to even try to salvage any parts of it yeah anyway i just thought that that was an interesting element um let's move on to our easter eggs mm -hmm. okay now mine goes back to us offhanded comment that Rutherford said early in the episode when he is trying to figure out what could be in the cargo uh, containers for the ship, the derelict ship that the Drumani want to get so badly. One of his guesses is a cryo frozen princess. Hmm. This is a deep cut from Enterprise season two, episode 11, Precious Cargo. Hmm. This is a pretty simple story. After the Enterprise rescues a pair of aliens with a mystery cargo trip tucker finds himself in a major predicament when he accidentally opens a cryogenic container with a female in it better known as katama the first monarch of the sovereign dynasty of Krios prime uh, basically it's padma lakshmi from top chef the right. host from top chef acting and let's just say <laughs> that's not her forte right Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty awful episode. Yes. In fact, uh, Precious Cargo's original writer, David A. Goodman, has repeatedly stated that there were two very different forms of the episode, 
that's that is described basically by him as both of them being a piece of crap. <laughs> These were specifically the original version of his script and the final edit that was done that eventually aired on television, which had been rewritten by executive producer Brandon Braga. Braga even asked Rick Berman if there was a way for the episode not to be broadcast back in, <laughs> back in the early 2000s. That's pretty bad. Yeah. And in 2013, Braga um, cons- um, publicly ex- uh, presented that he considered Precious Cargo to be one of the worst Star Trek episodes ever. Although Goodman, who didn't take full responsibility for the results of the script, seeing how it had been edited by others, um, laughs and said he's very proud of the fact that he's written one of the most hated episodes of Star Trek ever. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's my that's my history. Yeah. I mean, I really like Trip a lot. But, yeah. But, but he's acting for two in that episode. Oh, man. That, oh, so, oh yeah, yeah. She's yeah. awful. She's awful. The, all, the episode's awful. It's yeah. just, there's nothing good there. Nothing. So my Easter egg. Okay, so this week, I can't say there was a particular Easter egg that got me excited. However, since I had to choose one, I am going to choose the fact that they did make a reference to the USS Titan, the ship where Fletcher was transferred to after his promotion. Our listeners may recall, we first hear about the Titan in the film Star Trek Nemesis. It is the first ship that uh, comes under the command of Picard's former first officer, Will Riker, who transfers there with his new wife, ship counselor, Deanna Troy, in 2379. So when Fletcher transfers to the Titan in 2380, it is only the second year of Riker's command. From watching Riker on TNG, you know he enjoyed a good time. But he did not tolerate screw-ups. No, not at all. So you're not surprised Fletcher only lasted six days on his ship. Actually, you should be amazed he lasted six Six days. Six days, right. You know, because Riker, who, like you said, does like a good time, also was really a hard ass. He was a taskmaster. Yeah, he was pretty, and he really didn't suffer fools well. No. Okay, let's move on to Star Trek news, which there is quite a bit. Yes. So uh, last Tuesday, September eighth, was Star Trek Day. Uh, you know, we thought that the the day lived up to its hype. It was a stream all day event featuring a marathon of both episodes from all nine series, as well as panels featuring cast members, production staff from all of the shows. And if you didn't get a chance to see the panels, you can find them all at on YouTube under the CBS All Access. Um, channel. We'll take some time here to provide you with some of the news that we gleaned from these panels. So first, Star Trek Discovery panel featured the release of a new trailer for season three of the series, which will premiere next month on Thursday, October 15th. The trailer revealed the following tidbits about the upcoming season. The USS Discovery and Michael Burnham have traveled 930 years into the future to the year 3188. However, they did not end up on the planet Terrialisium as planned, and Burnham is initially separated from her crewmates. The first person Burnham meets in this future world is Cleveland Booker, played by David Ajala. 
There are a few shots of the two wandering about a desolate, snowy landscape. Booker tells her the Federation is no longer what it once was due to a cataclysmic event called the burn. In a later shot, it seems as if Booker and Burnham are becoming romantically involved. Yeah. Well, um, we don't know what species still consider themselves part of the Federation. However, the trailer does show humans, Vulcans, and Dorians, um, possibly Kelpians, right. and Trills. Yeah. So we do not know how long Burnham is separated from the Discovery, but by the time she is reunited with them, her hair is much, much longer. This suggests she may have been separated from, from them for at least a year. The Discovery crew seems to have crashed on the surface of a planet. However, it does appear from their uniforms that Saru has finally been awarded the captain's chair. In another scene, Burnham is seen squealing with delight. So it seems she continues to claim her human emotional heritage and does not feel as restricted by her Vulcan upbringing. The new, new technology is also evident in a few scenes. Um, there are shots that were so brief, it was difficult to tell the effects these inventions had on the lives of those living during this time. But there was evidence that there was some new technology that we're going to be introduced to That's in right. this episode. And finally, a new logo for the show was revealed using that uses a larger font for the word discovery, which better draws your attention to the ship's name right. than the previous logo. And I think also discovery changes in meaning because they basically have to discover the this essence. new world. Well, yeah. not just this new world, but also what is what is Starfleet. You know, I think yeah. they, that's they've got to rekindle that fire. And yeah. So that's that's also one of the things that they're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on. And talk a little bit about Ready Room. Last we last time we had an episode was the first episode of Lower Decks. And now we have this one, which came on the sixth episode. And we were informed that we'll have one more, which we'll be following on the last couple of episodes. So um, Will Wheaton, who, along with Micah Burton, moderated uh, the Star Trek Day panels, announced that he would continue to host the Star Trek after show called The Ready Room. Besides the two shows he's already filmed, he is slated to host an installment following the season finale of Lower Decks, and then one per week following each episode of Discovery's third season. Yeah, I think, well, we does a pretty good job. I do so, too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, I, I was hoping also that they would find a place for Michael Burton, who is the daughter of, of LeVar. LeVar Burton, yeah. you know, from the next generation. And she did a good job. She did a good job. Yeah. You know, she brings this kind of youthfulness to... Uh, the show. So, um, you know, it'd be nice if at least she showed up on the ready room as a correspondent or something like I that. I think it's going to be important. I mean, one of the things that they obviously want to do is generate um, a, an appeal of younger viewers That's to right. Star Trek. And you can't keep having 50, 60, 70, 80 yeah, year yeah. old people showing up and that's all you see i mean yes we are you know eternally in love with these actors who played these characters that are very endearing to us and the, the creators of those shows but we need to co constantly think about ways of generating a new audience which is which 
the cartoon show, the the Nickelodeon show, all seem to be targeted towards happen, making happen. So, yep. Anyway. So next we want to talk about Star Trek Pod Directive. So CBS Television Studios and Star Trek Global Franchise Group announced the podcast Star Trek The Pod Directive. And it, and it is available, so you can su- subscribe now via StarTrek.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms in advance of its premiere, which is Monday, September 14th. Oh, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow, you know, uh, with us recording this podcast. Yes, yeah. yes, right. Um, announced during the Star Trek Day by Tawny Newsom in uh, the Star Trek Lower Decks panel, as part of the Star Trek Day, Paul F. Tompkins, Bojack Horseman, um, also from uh, Comedy Bang Bang, joins her as co-host of the podcast, which I think is going to be interesting. He's he's a comic. He's been he's done a lot of the the uh, roast that was done on 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 um, Comedy, Central. Comedy Central and the number and number number of the things. So he has a quick wit. I think that'll be a nice addition to the show. So according to the press release, Star Trek The Pod Directive takes a smart, witty, and thoughtful look at things, uh, Trek, both old and new, offering a high-level discussion of themes, ideas, and characters that resonate across the history of the franchise's storied universe. Episodes will also explore the brand's 50-plus year legacy and influence. Each episode features an in-depth personal interview with a notable guest, coverage of a Star Trek event, or a discussion of a specific topic with one or more guests. Right. Now, upcoming guests will include Ben Stiller, the actor and producer, uh, Reza Aslan, who is both an author and a commentator on culture, um, Michelle Hurd, who is, you know, we know as an actress from Picard, uh, Kendra James, the managing director for StarTrek.com, Angelica Bassian, who's a staff writer for Vulture, the online yes. magazine, uh, Mike McMahon, creator, executive producer, showrunner of Star Trek Lower Decks, Stacey Abrams, politician and activist. Big, big Star Trek fan. Big Star Trek fan. Now, she likes Voyager. That's her favorite oh, series. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Take Nataro, we know, you know, comedian, and she's an actress on... Um, Star Trek Discovery. Well, so to speak. <laughs> she's she's, she, she's chief, chief engineer it. Jet Reno. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Uh, Samantha Cristoforetti, who is an ESA astronaut. She, so she's been up to the to the um, to the space center, the space station we have up there. Uh-huh. Bill McKibbins, author, environmentalist, and activist. Jeff and Jeff Russo, who is the producer and composer of both Picard's. Uh, theme song as well as the theme songs for um, Discovery and Short Tracks. That's right. The new episodes will drop weekly Mondays through um, November 9th and fans can subscribe or download Star Trek The Pod Directive via StarTrek.com as well as Apple Podcasts Spotify, or any other podcasting application yeah, I'm sure you that can you find might it. use. I'm sure you can find yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think that'll be a problem. Well, there was also a bit of crossover news during Star Trek Well, there was Day. the potential of some possible potential, crossover. Potential, yes. Yeah. So, during the Strange New Worlds panel, 
Executive producer and showrunner Akiva Goldsman stated he has been advocating for a crossover episode between Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks. Of course, we don't know if that will mean all characters from both shows would be animated or it will, or whether it's con- going to consist of a mixture of live action and animated characters. Nor do we know if that means Lower Decks crew will time travel to the past or Pike's ship will jump to the future. In any case, we're both on board with the idea and hope it does come to fruition in the next year or two. Yeah, I think that'd be an interesting. Really idea. interesting. I, yeah. I, 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 I get, so I would really like to see it. I really because I think that that, that could be funny. Yeah. Um, I think it probably would be better served if they everybody was animated. But I could see a combination of the two really right. working out. That that could be really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So. After that, which I think everybody was really excited about, yeah, um, we got you know there wasn't a whole lot of news in any of the other panels and that on on the new shows. Not and, and Picard really didn't have anything to offer. And that doesn't mean that those panels aren't worth Absolutely. listening to because because it it was really great and and especially if you haven't heard. Uh, George Takei talk about you know his life and right. what it was like to for his family to be interred during you know World, during World War Two. Yeah. I mean, you really should listen to that. It really is heart wrenching. Yeah, there were a number of things that were revealed during these panels, not just about Star Trek, but about these these people as the lives of the, the lives of these the, people actors. Yeah. The relationships they had built in the shows, how that indeed, I mean, the, the Deep Space Nine panel was a loving tribute to um, both Aaron Eisenberg and Rene Auberge-Noir. That's right. So it was a really, really So So it really is worth you taking a listen, listen to the panel. But as far as, you know, news, you know. Yeah, the, 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 brief, the briefest amount of news that came out of the Picard panel, which was basically Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, what, and, and as, you know, the moderator was Will Wheaton, so, so he would so it throw was, it. So it was like Slash, uh, a Next Generation revival as right, well. Right, right. Uh, so the only thing that really came out was that Patrick Stewart stated at the very end of the of the interview that he was very pleased with the quality of the first four episode scripts that he had read for season two. But he admitted that he had no idea as to when production was going to start. Right. And, and you know, there are a lot of factors going to take into consideration. He's a man almost 80. He, you know, the pandemic has a huge oh, he's o- He's over 80. Yeah. He? Okay. Yeah. He well anyway he's in his eighties. Yeah. He's a man who is uh, so he's in the most high risk group oh, when it yeah. comes to this 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 pandemic. He's in California. He's in California, which is suffering from a whole host of other things. Right. And so they would be naturally impaired on being able to get production started. Right. Um, but at least the, the writers are writing and they're able to get stuff work, you know, begun and they can even begin planning pre-production. But, you know, obviously nothing can be executed at this point where they could start shooting. Yep. So, so in closing, we'll be back next week with a review 
of episode seven of Lower Decks entitled Much Ado About Bormuller. I think that's going to sound, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. But until that time. Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, Facebook, and at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where you, we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the shows. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. Yeah.